and we'll see you soon. Oh, hang on, I didn't do a quote. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, what film is that from? <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Film File, episode 21, brought to you in the pandemic era. <laughs> the pandemic that- era, the start of the pandemic era, this might be, when people look back at this in 20 years from now. <laughs> yeah, this is when there's a time traveller comes back and goes, what, you're still in year one? Anyway, it's the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And with me, as ever, Andy Meakin. How's you keeping? I'm, I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I've... Struggled with a bad back, and so I uh, was laid up watching loads of films this weekend. So I've made good progress on my list of films I've not seen. But I've also, um, as some people might have noticed, we've now set up a little, well, I've set up a little side YouTube channel to tie into the show. We, at the moment, it's got a couple of videos just promoting episodes, but also a couple of like, when things come to mind that I just want a little five minute rant about, <laughs> I just record myself ranting about it. I'm putting it on there, but I'm aiming to use it to also give some like little background information towards film file, what, who we are as people, what we, our interests are and little nuggets and things like that. Whenever things come to mind that don't quite fit the format of the show, I can do little five minute video things. Great idea. I, I, I think that's a great idea. And I'm glad to, I've been watching them very, very well done. It's, it's actually cheaper for you than therapy. It's great. It's a, it's a great way to get things out there. And I've, I mean, I've, I've worked out the skill of video editing at the same time, adding in all the little images and videos in the background and stuff like that. I'm, I'm having so much fun with it. Good. I, I've been a bit bored. Um, I think the last week has finally started to go, you know what, I've had enough now. Starting to, uh, uh, starting to take its toll. Really need to get out. Really need to catch up with people and, and do things. But, you know, I'm not one of those people who've... Um, unfortunately think it's all over flock to the beach and then moaned that loads of people are at the beach yeah absolutely i'm, I'm not that guy but anyway I'm, I'm 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 keeping staying by doing the film file and in, in this particular episode we will be looking at the news brought to you as ever by andy we'll be doing a deep dive on monty python the holy grail and all things python andy will be telling me his thoughts on boogie nights and we'll kick off with the World Wide Web news that Andy's been trawling to bring you all the latest nuggets of information to help keep you sane. So let's just start off with the latest update on Tenet. There is no latest update on Tenet. <laughs> the studio have still not announced one way or the other. I know that last week we reported that they were going to be, Warner Brothers was going to make the decision whether to be opening on July the 17th as planned. However, they've still not made an announcement. The reason why... Apparently, the mucking, because a load of cinemas in the US opened this weekend, they're watching some key locations, some of the big locations, to see what kind of audience levels those cinemas get before they make a decision. Because this film apparently will need approximately 80% of the world cinemas to reopen before July the 17th in order to profit. And that's basing on the limited capacities that the cinemas will be operating at the limited show times that they'll be operating at in order to avoid large crowds. It's They're in a situation that they want to stick to the release date, but if they do and the cinemas can't handle the business levels, the film will suffer. So they Absolutely. need to really weigh everything. So that's why they're keeping an eye on key locations. And breaking news today is that in China, things are locking down again because they've got a second wave. And also, I mean, 
not to sort of dismiss that, but also the kind of uh, filmmaker that, that Nolan is, he's not going to want, because it's been such a secret plot, he's not going to want it to get out by having a staggered release. So he needs that worldwide release. Studio have confirmed that there is no, that isn't an, even an option on the table. There is no option for a staggered release on this film. It either goes out to all territories at once or not at all. So we will either see it on July the 17th or we won't and it will get pushed back. But I fully imagine there will be some announcement within the next week because they are really cutting it fine for the final push on marketing. And of course, if they push back, they're going to affect the Wonder Woman date that, that was in it place. It will push everything back. All reports that have read on it have all said that if it does get pushed back, every release schedule will shuffle as a result. This is the only film that's been holding off on moving that release date, and this is the key time for it. Um, on related topic to that is a, a new EDO moviegoer study has found that 75% of US film go- goers are actually quite looking forward to returning to cinemas upon their reopening oh, if certain safety measures are impl- implemented. So people do want to go back to the cinemas. I mean, we've discussed this a few times. It's like, is the audience still going to be there for cinemas at the end of all this? Or are people going to be Absolutely ready to just be. sit at home and watch things on video demand? 75% of US film goers are actually like, well, you know what? As long as cinemas have some safety measures and procedures in place, yep, we're back. And the kind of safety measures that they're looking at is that 91% of people said that all cinemas should have hand sanitizer stations throughout the building. 86% favor limited show times to allow for extended cleaning times between screenings. That will give them confidence. 77% want employees to wear face masks when serving them or dealing with them. 7% want employees' temperatures checked. So if an employee turns up for work, has the temperature checked and has a high temperature, they are sent immediately home and not allowed to work until they've been quarantined. Um, 70, 70% want attendees to wear face masks. I know some cinemas in the US which have opened have made it optional. They've encouraged patrons to wear face masks, but they're not enforcing it. But it appears that 70% of people who are returning to cinemas are actually quite keen with the idea. I, I think it's a good idea. Nearly 60% of moviegoers are open to have their own temperatures taken. Question for you, Andy. I mean, you know that, that cinemas are, and a lot of the ways that they make profit are with with, with sweets and drinks. Yep. If you If you... You're going into a cinema and uh, you're having to wear a face mask. Surely that's going to knock on a big knock-on effect on, on snacks and that sort of thing because you can't be there yeah, munching on popcorn to a face mask. It's going to impact. I mean, I know that some cinemas in the US aren't doing fresh popcorns and things like that. They're not doing any like thing that has to be put together. Nachos, popcorns, hot dogs. They're only doing packaged foods so that there's limited contact between the employee and the product and the employee and the customer. They're limiting the contact. So cinemas need the money from that, but they need the footfall and they need to build up the they, they need to build up the momentum with the customers again before they can start going back to the standard way of doing it. We still don't know from our cinema exactly how we're going to operate. That's obviously being looked at by our head office at the moment. So as we get closer in the UK to opening, we'll know what kind of measures are getting put in place in this country for giving that confidence back to the customers that the cinema will be a safe environment for them. I've got one thing, Andy, and I think this could make us millionaires. Soup. <laughs> Super. <laughs> Soup we can sell on site across cinemas. I think I think that's the golden ticket. Soup through a straw. There you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm just going to interject with, a, with something I've heard, and I meant to mention this before we started recording. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a director. I'm not going to uh, mention him. 
He's currently working on American television. And they were saying about what their process is to go back to work. And it's that um, crew and, and especially cast, especially actors who've got intimate scenes together, are almost going to have to quarantine for two weeks before they start shooting. They're going to advance the uh, filming days from normally uh, over a week, eight-day period to shoot an episode, knocked it up to about 13 days, and uh, making sure that it's almost the environment is is more controlled so the filming environment doesn't have people coming into the set. It's a, it's a complete lockdown on the set. And we've talked about how the end product's going to change getting to us, but what we've not talked about is, is the filming process. You know, if you've got two actors in a in a love scene, for instance, you know, both actors want to know that each other is is, is safe to be able to do that. So apparently, there's going to be a, a two week quarantine before filming even starts with with those cast, and then you you're sort of in lockdown once production starts. That's going to add a a lot of variables into the time management for setting up what gets filmed when and where the locations are at what points because they'll have to factor all that in. It will extend out to the shooting schedules. But also, you've got to think about the pressure on the actual actors and, and, and crew members yeah, involved absolutely. in that. It's like they will not be allowed to see their families for that period. And I know that a lot of like people on movie sets, etc., that they, they will not see their families for short periods of time while they're off on location because they don't drag the families around every location with them. But this adds that extra complication that they can't even have a flight. Like, you know, they've got two days that they're not shooting. Oh, I'll pop home and see the kids. Yeah. They won't yeah, be able absolutely. to do that. And, you know, that's a lot of personal pressure to put on to people working within the industry. It's going to almost, it, I was, I've been thinking about it. It's going to almost be like repertory theatre where a group of actors, especially in TV, live and work together and stay in the same hotels and then sort of move on. I think it's going to have, uh, it's, it's definitely, if actors want to work and professionals want to work, then that's the way that they're going to have to do it. They're going to have to be in total lockdown prior to shooting. If you're a guest star, I guess it's going to mean more pre-production that every angle, every moment until filming starts is covered. As you said, location, who that yeah. guest star is, who's coming in. Same with extras. I think we're going to see a fundamental change to how production's made as well. It's going to have a bigger impact on TV, I think, than it will on movies, because movies are a little bit like a traveling circus. You know, people uh, do have a tendency to to live within that domain. And I think TV, especially when you've got supporting actors coming in to do just one episode, yeah, then that's going to have to be further down the line pre-approved and nobody just turns up, you know, two days before filming. In addition on TV, it's not the same director for every episode. So you've got a different Absolutely. production team on every episode as well. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be curious. I think as a result, we might see shorter seasons of yes. shows next year. All the ones like your CW shows that run to 24, 26 episodes. I think they'll be cutting back significantly as a result, which could benefit the storytelling, less filler, more killer. I know your next story, Andy, as one that's been very close to your heart, because we've talked about it over several weeks now, if not feels like a lifetime. Apparently, <laughs> Zack Snyder has a major announcement likely to be made this week, in fact, tomorrow. Yeah, as, as we're recording at the moment, it's the 19th, and apparently tomorrow he's doing another Q&A, um, Ask Me Anything, whilst running one of his films. Master and he's pro he's promised a big announcement, which a lot of the Snyder fans have decided already that 
it's going to be announcing the release of the Snyder Cut because there's been talks about how back in January, apparently, the, the Snyder Cut was shown to Warner's executives and they dismissed it and went, no, that's rubbish. But those executives have left and the ones who were remaining were ones who went, well, actually, there's potential here. And so this has gained momentum and traction over the past few days that, yes, these viewings took place and there might be some rumours going on behind the scenes that HBO Max might get the rights to it. Now, that the Snyder cultists have now created their own storyline a whole thread of like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna re-edit it down into like six episode chunks, and it'll be a TV series. What? Where are they getting this from? Oh yeah, he's got the money now to refilm like the bits that he wants to film. Oh, Ben Affleck's coming back, and they're just making stuff up. And the thing is, Zack Snyder, like he's been doing since day one, is just clicking like every now and then, knowing that that sends them into a flurry of like, he's liked it, so there must be truth. He's liked it, there must be truth. He, he's just self-promoting. And I wouldn't be surprised if this big announcement tomorrow is his um, announcement for when we're actually going to see his Netflix uh, zombie film. His heist movie in a zombie apocalypse, it's called... Army of the Dead. That's the one. Yeah, I've been reading about this. I've been following it, not particularly in, uh, intently, because A, I'm not interested, and B, <laughs> I'm not really interested. But it's you know the, the the conversation is is that Snyder Cut is going to take some some either a limited a series run on HBO Max. It's also been speculated we'll get just a work print edition, not that different to uh, Blade Runner and, and Alien Three. Alien Three's David Fincher did a work print, so basically Warner's won't have to spend any money. I don't think yeah. Warner's are going to particularly want to spend any money. No. But, you know, put it, if they are going to put it out, HBO Max is a better area than anything else. It's the whole thing of whenever they do their, like, oh, yeah, we, we've trended on Twitter with uh, 2.5 million release the Snyder Cut hashtag tweets today. And it's like, yeah, but there's 25 of you each posting it out a couple of thousand times in one day and retweeting each other. So you're compounding it all. If, if all the, like, Snyder Cultists just tweeted out once a day, I think we'd see a different level of excitement around this. I think they, it is a small number of people who've created a big noise. And the yeah. worry is that if they, get the, if they get their way and the Snyder Cut does get released, what do they do next? Then they'll start harassing Warners to say, bring Snyder back, rehire Snyder, rehire Snyder. I think it, it doesn't bode well. You don't think it's going to end well at all, do you? I don't know. I can just see it like, you know, they'll, they'll get their own way and then they'll say, we won this fight. Where do we go now? We've got to win the war. I'm going to move on and get some, hopefully some <laughs> good news that'll, that'll make you happy. There's been some talk, and it is only talk, but according to some reports, that both the SpongeBob movie, uh, Sponge on the Run, and, and let's hope it's true, Bill and Ted 3 are going to be skipping theatres and heading straight to digital. How do we feel yep. about that? I, I actually feel quite positive about this. I mean, the SpongeBob films have never been huge hits at the cinema, and it does baffle me every time they announce another one. Is there, is there an audience for another SpongeBob film? There is on TV. So I think ideally, SpongeBob TV. Bill and Ted's is one that, as a huge fan of the Bill and Ted's films so far, yes, I would love to see it on the big screen, but I'm a realist. And much in the same way that Kevin Smith's Jane Silent Bob's reboot didn't deserve a big screen outing and didn't deserve, wouldn't, wouldn't have had enough business to sustain a box office release. 
I think Bill and Ted's is, is still very cultish. And whilst there's those of us who grew up with Bill and Ted's and love it and think that it might be popular, have you asked the kids these days whether they know who Bill and Ted's is? Have you asked people who are 18, do they know? I've got yeah. to agree with you wholeheartedly, Andy. I think I love Bill and Ted and can't wait to see Face the Music. Yeah. But I do think a, a VOD uh, distribution of it is is the way to go. Because as, as we've seen, some of these films have done really good numbers on VOD that I don't think would have done. I mean, you've seen Scoob over yeah. the last couple of days. And I know you yeah. liked it. I really enjoyed it. It's um, I, I'm a, I forgot how much of a fan of Hanna Barbera cartoons I was until I started watching that because I've not been enamoured with the Scooby Doo products sit like over the past decade and a half, two decades, because it's all felt a bit eh, derivative. Whereas this reminded me of everything Hanna Barbera and it introduced a load of Hanna Barbera characters that people today don't really know, like Dino Mutt, like Blue Falcon like Captain Caveman, like Dick Dastardly, they're all within this film. So it was less a Scooby-Doo film and more a Hanna-Barbera shared universe. And yes, you could argue there's too many shared universes, but Hanna-Barbera was probably one of the first things to do this shared universe thing. Wacky races, even just general pop-ups of characters on each other's cartoon shows happened frequently back in the day. So this felt like a pure Hanna-Barbera love letter and... I, I, I was thrown back to my childhood again, and I was like, I'm embracing this film. I love it. So you think that, that going VOD for that and possibly for, for SpongeBob and Bill and & Ted is the way forward? I think, it's, I think it's the way forward for films like this that have that limited cult of attraction that maybe spending all that money to give it a box office release won't pay off. Video on demand pays off a lot better for them. And this is where we're going to see the industry going from this point onwards, that there will be a lot more film, films going to video on demand because they'll probably only get one weekend, maybe two weekends at the box office, whereas they can do a lot better on home streaming. If you are interested in seeing them at the cinema and we're completely wrong, the SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run, opens August 7th and Bill and Ted Face the Music opens August 21st. So we've got quite a lot of little snippets of news, nothing really major, but little nuggets of like casting informations to rattle through. Uh, so, we spoke about Screen 5 last episode. We did. And we said that Neve Campbell is looking to be coming back. Well, now David Arquette has signed on as Sheriff Dewey. So, the whole film looks like it's going to be a reunion of all the like original cast. Well, the original cast, who, like the characters are still alive, obviously. To like keep it in that firm, this is a sequel, not a reboot. This is all these characters that you loved. Directors of Ready or Not, Alpin and Gillis Hellman, like we've reported before, and filming's set to begin later this year. And other casting news that we've touched on before. Previously, we mentioned that Anna Taylor-Joy was in the running to play Furiosa in the prequel to Mad Max Fury Road. But now, apparently, Killing Eve's Jodie Comer is being tipped. She's definitely on a rise, isn't she, right now? She's on a huge rise right now. I mean, she's, she's going to be in Ridley Scott's Last Duel. And also she's in Free Guy, which is, well, it was due out this summer, the Ryan Reynolds video game action film. But it's definitely a good time for this actress who just has took that step from small screen with loads of like plaudits and awards with Kit that she got through Killing Eve and being propelled straight into the Hollywood circuit. Good old Liverpool girl's done good there. Proud of her. So Walt Disney are in the early stage of developing a live-action adaptation of The Snow Queen, originally based on a, a story by Hans Christian Andersen. Yes, I know we've had Frozen, which was inspired, but it's not the same story. 
So there's uh, a plan to develop that. Kristen Burr, whose credits include Christopher Robin and the upcoming Cruella, is the only attached producer. Um, no word yet on writer, director or cast, but it looks like it's in development. And let's hope they go back to the original story because it's quite, it's quite a dark story. The fact they've announced it as a live-action version of Snow Queen and not a live-action version of Frozen suggests to me that, yes, it's going back to the original source material. So I'm, 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 this is what they should be doing with their live-action versions. They should be adapting the original story in a, in a different way than what they've done before on their animations. They did that with Maleficent. And I must be honest, I I wasn't a big fan of Maleficent, but I did like I did like the take on Dumbo. I thought, even though it got, got slated when it came out, uh, I managed to see it on Disney+. Plus. I really liked the take on Dumbo. I thought they did something unique and different that still gave it a, a reason to exist as opposed to kind of like The Lion King, which was just a, a almost shot-for-shot shot remake. But but I think I think Dumbo definitely earned a reason to exist. Uh, Matt Reeves' Batman film, it looks like it's definitely taken inspiration from a long Halloween graphic novel because Colin Farrell has recently confirmed that his Penguin only has a small part to play in the films. In his yes, words, I, I, haven't, I haven't got that much to do. I have a certain amount in the film. I'm not all over it by any means, but there are a couple of taste, couple of some tasty scenes I have in it and my creation, and I can't wait to get back. Yeah, mm. it's, I mean, it was already looking like to be a, a last Hall- long Halloween anyway. I mean, with the lineup of characters in there, I mean, obviously we've got Rob Patterson as Batman, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle, a.k.a. Catwoman, Paul Dano as the Riddler, Jeffrey Wright as Commissioner Gordon, uh, Chitoro as um, Carmine Falcone. So there was already quite heavy on characters and villains in there so yeah they weren't going to focus on one can't wait to see what happens with it and despite what all the negative press going on at the moment about how patterson's not exercising uh he's not going to be an overweight out of shape batman no not when you've got a studio behind it like warners who are pumping millions of pounds and dollars into this have these people who are turning against the film purely on his comments never seen him in an interview have they never listened to his commentaries on the Twilight DVDs? He is very offhand and sarcastic, and a lot of the times he's just saying things just to get a promote, uh, just to provoke. Of course, he's exercising for it. Of course, he's going to be in shape. He's supposed to be an early start to Batman as he's getting to that shape. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Tiger King. So there's a Tiger King movie. No, step away. Which is- which apparently is seeking Tara Reid to play Carol Baskin. Really? Carol Baskin, as everyone who knows, uh, killed her husband, whacked him, fed him to tigers, the snacking. Don't tell me that it didn't happen. Actually, sorry, I've just been tipped off far too much. I'm losing interest with every word. This is a film adaptation of the Netflix documentary, which is a separate adaptation to the CBS eight-part series, which has Nick Cage attached. And also separate to the Universal podcast adaptation with Kate McKinnon. My question, why? Yes, as I said, hashtag don't care. I mean, the documentary was fascinating, bewildering, bizarre, and told you everything you need to know. Why do we need three more adaptations of it from a fictional capacity? It already feels like a work of fiction when you watch it. (laughs) Bonkers. Uh, But sticking with Netflix, Netflix and Adam Sandler have planned their next collaboration. Now, bear in mind that when Adam Sandler signed up with Netflix, those years ago, I was ready to cancel my Netflix subscription. I was like, I don't pay for this rubbish. How dare he? But I'm, I'm 
yeah, I've seen a few of his films on there that he showcased some acting talents. There was the Mayor Owitz stories, and obviously there was uh, Uncut Gems last year, which, which was I excellent. absolutely loved. Uh, well, his next collaboration is a film called Hustle with director Jeremiah Zagar, who made We Are the Animals, or okay. We the Animals. Uh, and LeBron James is producing. And it's a tale of a basketball scout who's fired but discovers a talented player while overseas who he brings back to the US to make a name in the NBA. It's got potential. It looks a bit more of a dramatic approach one rather than his crass comedies. So um, I actually get more and more excited every time Adam Sandler's name is mentioned at the moment. And that kind of destroys a bit of my soul. <laughs> Aside from that, uh, Michael Mann. We're big fans of Michael Mann, aren't we? We are, even though, and I'm going to just jump in. I, I mean, I'm a, a huge fan of Michael Mann. There's not much in his work that, that I don't like. However, he's had a trend recently to go back and recut his work uh, for Blu-ray and DVD release. Now, not always, for me, are they successful recuts of his work. And I know we're going to be talking about Heat in a second, but his, his new cut of Manhunter, I think, falls short of the original. And I know there's been a recut he's done on Heat, which I've not seen, so I can't comment on it. But I did think that uh, his recut of... Uh, of of Manhunter was was a lot weaker than the the version that I've seen and absolutely oh, that's adore. A that's a shame because I absolutely love Manhunter. That that for me is as will always be the best Lecter film. Yeah, and it's the definitive uh, Lecter performance for me. Yeah, it's 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 not the theatrical pantomime villain approach that the character became notorious for in the more recent films. Uh, but anyway, there's. A novel adapt. There's a novel version of a prequel to Heat in the pipeline, and Man is adapting that to a screenplay to make a prequel film. He's very keen to make a prequel film uh, for Heat as well. He's, he's got ideas for a sequel to the film. That's interesting. It, there's a lot of interest because there's a lot of interest. If you've watched Heat, you'll know that there's a lot of potentially interesting things that went on before that film that led to those events. Whether there's room for a sequel, I'm I'm not sure, but I've got a lot of faith in Michael Mann. I do like his storytelling nature. I love his visual style, and I, I'm keeping my eye on this one. Have you ever seen the original version of Heat, LA Takedown, the TV LA Takedown, movie? yeah. It's a much more compromised version, and it hasn't got the scope, but it's it's interesting. It just, it's it's almost, this is what you get when you get great actors and, and a budget based on on that idea so quickly off the top of your head what's your favorite michael mann film it, it's always manhunter for me it's always manhunter i love so many of his films i love last of the mohicans i think it's classic oh it's fantastic whereas manhunter i know that if i if i head off after this and pop it on to watch i will just be engrossed from start to finish i love it and um, sticking with novels that are going to be adapted uh, andy weir's latest novel that he's writing at the moment and he's the guy who wrote the martian that got adapted to that rather great film a few years that was ago a fantastic film i've seen it a few times and you know what even though you know the outcome you know or how the, even though you know the outcome and you know how the story unfolds it's still a gripping movie it's because of the powerful performance matt yeah, damon absolutely. is amazing and he, he just grabs your attention and he's so much fun to watch and that's what makes it uh, well, Lord and Miller are adapting his latest novel that he's writing for MGM. 
See, I'm always interested in Lord and Miller. Yeah, I mean, they, that, uh, is there anything that they've done that hasn't worked? Solo? Yeah, well, they didn't They didn't do it. <laughs> we, we will never see what Lord and Miller's version was. Why aren't, why aren't there Lord and Miller fans crying out for the Lord Hashtag and Miller? Hashtag release the Lord and Miller cut. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, but Amy Pascal is signed to produce, and Lord and Miller and Amy Pascal obviously worked on the best animated movie the past few years, Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, with Ryan Gosling set to star, and it will be a space-based story. The story details are scarce because we are still writing it. Working title of Project Hail Mary, and it follows a lone astronaut tasked with saving the planet, and that's all that we know at the moment. Mm. So it's more of the into space kind of territory, focusing on, primarily on one character. You had me at hello. Uh, casting and directing choice. You had me at Lord, basically. And finally, Mindy Kaling and Dan Gore are penning Legally Blonde 3. Is the world ready? I, I, you see, Legally Blonde franchise, when the first film came out, I was convinced I'd hate it. I was like, oh, God, this is going to be an awful, dreary chick flick, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so when the sequel came out, I was like, oh, they're just churning out a tired sequel and going to repeat all the same jokes, and I found myself enjoying that. So strangely enough, I'm quite looking forward to this, especially with Reese Witherspoon returning as Elle Woods. It's not an unnecessary sequel with new characters taking over, like they've done with the Bring It On films. Anyone who's a fan of the first Bring It On film, and who isn't, the first one's great. The sequels got worse because they, changed, they had different characters, not the same. So it's, it's a returning for Elle Woods to see where she is at this point in her legal career. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited because Mindy Kaling... I've loved her approach to comedy ever since her days on The Office. And she was one of the key writers on The Office, as well as yeah, being in front of the cameras as well. She's got a great wit to her. Her scripts, her scripts have like always been some of the best episodes. And I've loved to see where she's progressed her career. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for this. It, it sounds like a film that's completely out of my radar, but no, bizarrely, this is a film that I'm looking forward to. I've not really caught on to them, to be honest, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to completely go with what you're saying and maybe, maybe give it a go. So, Shall we just finish off just by saying that uh, the Scarface adaptation, which is in the pipeline, has the script by the Coen brothers, uh, will be set in present day in LA and has Luca Guadagnino. I'm going to go with whatever you go with, Andy. I'm, I, I trust you completely. <laughs> it has Luca Guadagnino in the running to direct it. Um, he directed Call Me By Your Name and Suspiria. Did you, what did you think of the Suspiria uh, remake? Because I'm a big I'll fan of the honest, original. I'll be honest and say I've not seen it. Hmm. Maybe should, we should add that to your list. Add, add the, maybe we should do it as a double thing. Add the remake to my list, but also do a drill down into the original. Ooh. It scared me to death when I first saw Suspiria. Ah. Suspiria-focused episode, that's a thought. For another day. And that was the news with Andy Meakin. If you're a fan of the podcast, we want you to subscribe and leave reviews. Uh, we always treasure your thoughts. If you want to get involved and offer up uh, any ideas of what films we could be doing the deep dive as we can't review anything, please let us know. Uh, if you just want to have a chat with us, if you want to tell us the reason why there should be a Snyder Cup, all you have to do is uh, reach out to us on Twitter and Andy, that is... At Filmfile UK. Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, as you know, I have been setting films for Andy of films, classic films that he's not seen. We've, we've tackled quite a few 
And last week I was absolutely shocked, yet no mortified, to realise Andy <laughs> had never seen Boogie Nights. So that was the film that I sent him. Andy, let me know what you thought of Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Night. Came out in uh, 1997, so it's a period drama. As I said, produced, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, it was set in, in Los Angeles in the 70s, and it really chronicles one particular character, Dirk Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg. And the first time, to be honest, that I think Mark Wahlberg proved himself to be a star for me. Uh, through, yeah, it was his breakout role, wasn't it? Yeah, through through the rise of the golden age of pornography. Brilliant cast. Uh, so we said Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, Burt Reynolds, Don Cheadle, John C. Riley, William H. Macy, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Heather Graham. I love it. It would be uh, an all-time favourite for me. But Andy, Boogie Nights, what did you think? I have mixed thoughts on this. Hmm. I, I think it's okay. I think it, it, it's an above-average film. But the tone of the film was all over the place at times. I couldn't work out if it was a dark comedy, a serious drama, or what. And the acting from some of the... I mean, you've mentioned the lineup of cast, and there's some great names in there. But at times, the acting feels somewhat flat. And I don't know whether it was deliberately flat, but people like William H. Macy is either having a really bad day or is deliberately underwhelming throughout it. And he's got one... It, there's a powerful moment in the film that should have had more of an impact on me relating to the, his character. But I, think I, I didn't care. Was, yeah. I didn't care at all because I wasn't convinced with the character because it just didn't, it didn't sell to me. And I don't know. I, I think the film seems overlong for the story it's trying to tell. At that point, I will agree with you. I think, and that's why I've never really gone back. I saw it at the cinema, absolutely adored it. I bought the Criterion DVD, which was fantastically packaged. Mm. I think I've watched it once, but I've never watched it again. And I, and I said, I love this film, but at two hours, 32 minutes. I think that's its only letdown. It, it was a mistake to be that long. It spends a lot of time on characters that don't really matter or serve the story at all. And, you know, this is a, this is a Paul Thomas Anderson kind of approach anyway, where he throws in multiple people and he did it much better, in my opinion, with Magnolia, where there were so many different people, so many members of cast. See, I'm the opposite. plot lines, and they wove together. Whereas in this, the other cast members are in there just to be in there and just to flesh it out. But the taking away from screen time from the interesting part of the story with pointless side diversions. But don't get me wrong. I mean, Julianne Moore is fantastic in it. Burt Reynolds is amazing. Mark Wahlberg, like I said, his breakout role, and what a breakout role. He, he dominated the screen, particularly in the very last shot. Um, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman is always great. In every role that he's ever done, even the most subdued role, he always stands out. And John C. Riley um, offered, offered some of my, my, my favourite funny moments with his, you know, how much do you bench? Uh, kind of like approach to things. I, I loved his character. Even if he was just a side character, he, he stole the scenes that he was in. And they make up for the shortcomings that the film has, which is why it's not a bad film. It's just, it outstays its welcome at a few points during the film and just about manages to pick it up again at the end to go, okay, then I'm, I'm, still, I'm still connected. I'm going to agree with you on, on part of that. Um, and and I, as I have said, do love it. Uh, I think it it's, has that sort of Nashville feel to it that that's why it's sprawling and there's so many characters i can i see that um i do think it slightly outstays its welcome in some scenes 
Some scenes are uncomfortable. I think when they go to the drug dealer's house, for instance, it felt overdone. Uh, yeah. I think Burt Reynolds was was in his later life was never better, I think, in it. And that's one of the, the pluses of it. I think it's a great film about the 70s that wasn't made in the 70s. It felt the detail was absolutely spot on. The uh, mood and the style characters. is perfectly evocative of the era. It was it looked and felt like the 70s perfectly. It's got that... It, it, it's impressive for me that it, it it's a film about a family ultimately this this sort of weird world and subculture that they live in within the the world of pornography it could have been about anything at that stage but it's a film ultimately about family and that's what i always liked about it so for the obvious reasons i i think it i think it's absolutely fantastic it goes darker very much darker i think it's a, definitely in this sort of nashville storytelling it's a film of two halves uh, then the first half is the, is the best part of the film. So it, there's there's a really at the heart of it a very simplistic storyline, which is uh, a, yeah. a, a classic. If it was a Hollywood film, young Injuine works their way to the top. Once at the top, um, it all falls apart, and and so it's, it really is a a very 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 simple storyline. But it's apart from Wahlberg's sort of breakout role. It's because it's in this world of pornography that gives it sort of this this strange outside of society sort of approach to it, and the and therefore these characters are all all a member of this sort of strange dysfunctional family. Um, I've got a lot of time for it. Maybe it's time for me to um, to, to to revisit it as well. See if it still holds up. Yeah, I mean, I, I I personally still feel that the latter films from Anderson are much stronger and much more confident examples of his skill. Magnolia, like I say, uses multiple characters, I feel, in a much better way where everyone serves an aspect of the story as it all weaves together. Punch Drunk Love, my favourite Adam Sandler film ever made. Absolutely brilliant film. I love this film to bits. There Will Be Blood is a solid character drama and really, like, it's got atmosphere and mood from start to finish. And The Master is another showcase of, like, how he, he puts uncomfortable situations in front of you but makes you engrossed in it in my opinion his cv got better with each film is each film got stronger and stronger but as an early example of him laying out his stall i think it works i think boogie nights works it shows that okay i i can use multiple people i can set things in a time period i can make things look evocative i use musical cues in the right way it shows his talent but i think his later films refined his individual aspects of his talent and made them stronger films for me. I'm the opposite. I think there was a peak for me with Boogie Nights that he he become became more indulgent as a filmmaker. That he was starting to flex that with with Boogie Nights. Um, Magnolia doesn't have the the effect on me that Boogie Nights does, even though it's a well told story. It suffers from some of the the same sort of um, off the track. Uh, narrative ideals, but I think Boogie Nights is a stronger film. But that's why we do this show, so we can talk about films that we like and not always agree. Not always agreeing completely. I mean, it, it, it's not a bad film. I'm not I'm not completely... I, I don't say around and say, you're wrong because you think it's good, this is garbage. This is, this is a, a good film. It's just... I think possibly because all the hype that it's had and people always refer to it as like a really, really strong film, it's kind of like... It, it set the expectations a bit high on it. So that's Boogie Nights. Um, I've looked at Andy's list. 
I've got a couple. I'm going to give you a choice this week, Andy. I'm either going to give you Roman Holiday or Goodwill Hunting, which I'm surprised you've never seen. What do you yeah, think? That, that always surprises a lot of people. Well, um, thinking about it, I mean, we've been talking about Michael Mann earlier, and we mentioned Last of the Mohicans. And this is actually on my list because I think it's one of those films that I kind of started half watching in mm-hmm. the background while I was doing something and didn't actually watch it because I have no recollection of how the film plays out. So it's okay. on my list of ones that I need to watch. So why don't we go with Last of the Mohicans this week and then we can use one of the other ones in future weeks. Okay. Bear in mind, I'll, I'll probably end up watching all three of those films yeah, yeah. over this next Just week. Keep because yourself, Keep yourself <laughs> in advance. It's great currency. Yeah, okay, um, Last of the Mohicans is your challenge. I can't remember off the top of my head what Oscars it won, but I know it, it was kind of sweeping when it came out. Uh, again, a film I've got a, a lot of love for, and um, let's hear your thoughts next week. Okay, cool. so as there's nothing to review in the cinema, Andy and I have been doing our deep dive on particular films. Last week we looked at The Abyss. This time we've gone for a complete change of heart, uh, gone something a little bit closer to home, Something I consider a classic, and that's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. From the people who brought you the 39th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and are already at work on the 41st anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail comes the long-awaited 40th anniversary re-release of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Back in cinemas in a special new edition. I told them we already got one. With up to 25% more peril. No, it's too perilous. We are the knights who say... Bring your friends, carry coconut shells, wear fancy dress. This isn't my nose, it's a false one. You could even sing along if you like. Uh, Stop that, you're not going into a song while I'm here. See it again for the first time on the big screen. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberry. Or if you've never seen it, see it now for the first time. Or see it for the first time since you last saw it. Or if you're very old or very ill, see it for what may be the last time. I'm not dead. I think I I could pull through, sir. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Back in cinemas for the first time since the last time. God be praised. Okay, so Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975 uh, British comedy, starring, of course, the Monty Python team. This was their first, not their first movie, because they did uh, now for something completely different, which, which was basically yes. a clip show but shot on film which was some of their greatest hits from the tv series but this was their their first real their first real solo project uh, as and you almost got to talk about monty python like they're a band because this was them breaking out of tv um written performed by the team of graham chapman john cleese terry gilliam terry jones who we recently lost eric idle uh, michael palin it was directed by gilliam and jones it was conceived during hiatus between the third and fourth series of the of the BBC series. And that was an interesting time for the team because that was the point at which Cleese in particular was getting less and less enamoured with the whole thing and like didn't want to just continue churn- churning out more Python stuff. Everything needed to be done for a reason. And, you know, they were starting to break apart. Uh, Chapman was on the peak of his alcoholism and an absolute mess to work with. So this was a, a very strange time for the team, which all led to this film. It's my favourite of the, of the Python films. 
I think there's much plaudit for Life of Brian, which is which is genius. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking anything away. And when I say it's my favourite, it's like trying to pick your favourite child. I just have more love for Monty Python and the Holy Grail than I do do for Life of Brian. And but that's just by the merest, merest uh, nth of a degree. I just prefer Holy Grail. It's so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I must have watched this on a loop during my student years. I loved it so much. I, I, I'm with you on this. This is my favourite Python screen outing. It just makes me cry every time I watched it. <laughs> now, I watched this recently. I introduced my son to it. It was only seven. And we were, I was using a quote. Uh, it was the Knights Who Say Nee lie. <laughs> and I had to explain what the Knights Who Say Nee is. And he said he wanted to watch it. And I wasn't sure. I didn't think he'd get it. And, and he's absolutely he's absolutely bowled over by it. It's the film that he he, he can quote. Um, he thinks everything from the Trojan Rabbit to uh, um, and we've just been out in the car talking about coconuts and Swifts. You know, it's <laughs> it really is um, it really is a, a film that that hasn't lost any of its impact, any of its humour. All these years later, 40 odd years later, it's just a marvellous, ridiculously funny, heartwarming. And so much of it came about by pure lack of budget and accident. I mean, it, it got its investments for the film came from loads of individuals, including rock stars from Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, who all saw it as a good tax write off at the time uh, when there was like, wasn't it a 90% taxable? on um, a lot of rock stars at the time. So they saw it as a good way to get a tax write-off. And the coconuts came about due to them running out of budget to get enough horses. They could only really afford one horse. So it was like, eh, well, let's just have someone following the coconuts. And even the, the locations, apparently they, they, re they wanted to shoot in multiple castles. And they found all the locations that they wanted to shoot for each of the individual castles. And the Department of Environment uh, turned them down. They banned them from it just as they were about to start shooting because apparently the Pythons, in Terry Gilliam's words, uh, they were told that they were doing things that were not consistent with the dignity and the fabric of the building, to which Terry Jones's reply was, these places have been built for torturing and killing people and you couldn't do a bit of comedy. Ridiculous. They ended up filming at uh, Dooncastle in, in Glencoe, yep. which was privately owned. And then, uh, and then used a lot of models for... Have you ever seen the series Outlander? Yes, it was filmed in the same place. They filmed. They both use uh, uh, Doom Castle, but yeah, that that was the primary location. Graham Chapman. He went so he went dry during the filming of it because, like I mentioned before, he was at the peak of his alcoholism for the years leading up to it getting made. And when they came to shooting, he went. He decided, "I'm not going to drink. I'm going to take this seriously." Because he was forgetting his lines. It was all over the place. But as a result, he was suffering from DTS, and he was having anxiety attacks. He was shaking on set. He he had an immense fear of heights as a result of it. And so the the first scene that they were shooting was the the, the chasm scene with the like being asked the questions and then having to walk across the bridge. And he couldn't do it. And so they had to get like someone else to act as him for doing the long shots of it. It it was it's a film that so many things went wrong during the making of it. But all those things made it a better film. Yeah, it kind of makes the film work as a Python film because it feels surreal. It feels like it's a hodgepodge of ideas and a bit of a mess. And that's Python through and through. And that's why I've loved Python ever since I was a kid. Introduced to it through the TV series, like getting reruns on BBC. 
everything fits together in this film. The Pythons yes. are at the height. I mean, as you said, it was a low budget. It was something like four hundred thousand dollars. It it box office was about five million dollars. So they definitely definitely made their money back. It was it was directed by Gilliam and Jones, who'd never directed a film before. So it was a huge learning experience for them and learning how to make a film. Uh, the cast described the, the novice directing style as employing the level of mutual disrespect always found in Python's <laughs> work. Everything works. It There is not a gag that falls short in this film. In every scene is a laugh-out-loud, quotable piece of comedy that is just priceless. In a way that, it, because it's rough and ready, it, it captures more of more of medieval Britain than the current version of King Arthur directed by Guy Ritchie could fail yep. on, on every level to do because it's dirty and because it's, it's it is a rock and roll film. It, it's a, it's a punk rock film. It's, it's made on a shoestring. It looks great. It's rough and ready out around the edges. And that's what makes it classic. And the writing of it makes it hysterically funny. It was interesting. Uh, I, I, as I've mentioned before, I'm listening through the autobiographies from various members of the Python team, and Cleese was one. When Cleese is talking about his early childhood, he's got a whole story about an early childhood trauma, which was when a really cute, cuddly rabbit, when he was, he must have been about four or five, he went to stroke it and it nipped him. And it, it, it really unnerved him, and like he, he couldn't face rabbits from that point onwards. And it's like, was this. Was this where the idea for the rabbits being the big nasty beastie <laughs> came from? And it all makes sense that they were drawing on like little comical anecdotes of their own to throw into the script. And it, it's, a, I mean, that, that scene is brilliant, especially like with John Cleese as Tim, the enchanter, talking about it. Like, Look at him. He's got great big teeth. Oh, and- it's classic. <laughs> I'm laughing it's now, a- just as you're doing <laughs> that. Uh, it's I mean, you mentioned the knights who say knee and knee, and you know, I, I can also point out that they're no longer the knights who say knee; they're the knights who go eke 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 for tang for wee bong. Brr. It's just it just proves that low budget filmmaking is about when it's done well is about ideas and, and using locations to to be convincing, uh, and that's why why it works. It it doesn't matter that it's low budget, but that grimy gritty feel to it just adds to a certain authenticity to it that you saw Gilliam use again in Time Bandits. Uh, and you saw Jones use the location on on uh, Life of Brian. Yeah. They they just, just did it very well. I mean, right from the get-go of the movie, in the opening credits featuring pseudo-Swedish subtitles, which turn into appeal to visit Sweden and see <laughs> the country's moose. And the majestic there, fjords. <laughs> every second of this film, there is a gag. And those gags, which is what good comedy should do, constantly, constantly pay off. It doesn't matter about the plot because it's not a film about plot. There is a story. It's about the Holy Grail. That's all you need to know. It's individual scenes, vignettes almost, that, that, that will make you laugh time and time again. And you can watch it. And then 10 minutes later, go and watch it again and find something funny in it or just laugh out loud at the gag you've just seen. It's that good a comedy. <laughs> and, and what a finale. An epic an epic finale. <laughs> an epic finale. It's the, I mean, the, the finale is the only time that they seem to have uh, any other additional actors in it because the Python cast play everybody in a multitude of roles. 
and they clearly found some some extras um, in the end. And then there's a an unusual payoff. And <laughs> I remember seeing it in the cinema, and uh, and the film for those who know spoilers if you've not seen it, the film's only been out forty odd years. <laughs> is the film just ends, and people in the cinema were sat waiting to see who was going to get it first because has this film really really ended? It's com- complete Python. Even daftness from like throwaway lines. One of them, one of the police who are arresting them, like he takes the shield off one of them and goes, "That's an offensive weapon." That is ignoring the sword, and that always sets me chuckling. <laughs> yeah, there's so much depth to it. There's there's so many reasons to revisit it. If you're ever feeling down, then just go back to Monty Python and the Holy Grail because, as comedies goes, it's perfect. And the advantage is, anyone who has Netflix, you've got instant access to it if you've not already got it on DVD or Blu-ray because that Netflix has all the Python material on there. And that's it for this week. Um, hope you've enjoyed it. But before we go, as we do every week, we have a neat thing. Um, Andy, what have you been watching, playing, listening to? Uh, what has been your entertainment for the last week? Well, I have the latest episode of John Oliver's last week tonight to blame for this one because after watching the latest episode of it and he finishes off talking about something on youtube called jelly's marble runs i have never heard of it but i know you're you're addicted because i've seen you in the absence of all sporting events there's nothing better than watching this channel it's marbles racing And it sounds like it'll be, oh, what am I watching here? But it is the most genius, brilliant thing I've ever seen. Racetrack set up either outdoors in trenches and things like that, and loads of marbles launched and following them and seeing which one wins. But it's not the fact that you're following them to see which one wins. It's how seriously it's taken and the commentary that makes it. And they've taken to building representations of like Grand Prix tracks with like plastic track levels and like little devices to bring the like balls back up to the starting grids to go round again and round again and round again. And the commentary is done in such a proper Formula One kind of approach where it'll be talking about, oh, and in the lead is this, oh, I'm coming up from behind us. And it's just random balls rolling. You know, there's no skill involved, but it's making it out so each ball has got a personality. And you just have to check it out. Just go onto YouTube, search for Jelly's Marble Runs. That's J-E-L-L-E, Marble Runs. And have a look through some of them. He did an Olympics one with different Olympic-style events with marbles. (laughs) He's built stands to put next to the racetracks, which the stands are populated with loads of marbles, as though the marbles are all watching these other marbles racing. This, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. I started, I watched the John Oliver pitching of it because John Oliver has now sponsored the next season of it to make sure that there can be another season of the marble runs because apparently they needed a new sponsorship. And I was like, let's check this out. Surely it's not as good as he's saying. And I watched one and straight away had to watch another and then watch another. And I was up until like three o'clock in the morning last night watching these marble races. <laughs> they are brilliant. Get on YouTube, get them watched. You'll see what I mean. Fantastic. Well, well, mine is, uh, and, and he's got to be the busiest man in Hollywood right now because he's he's in post-production on Next Goal Wins. He's, he's gearing up, or he better be, for Thor, Love and Thunder, he's, I'm sure he's been set to do a Star Wars movie. He's been in The Mandalorian, and that's Taiki Waititi, who we all love. 
we there's yeah. something about him. We, we just we'd like him. It'd, it'd be there's a, a game going round of who would you be your celebrity uh, dinner guest. I think Taiki Waititi would have to be in that. So isn't, isn't he like a modern day Python? Yeah, kind of. He's got that sort of sense of humor. Anyway, he's he's directing two animated Roll Doll projects for Netflix, uh, and he's been uh, he's been sitting down to launch a web series where he's reading um, Roll Dolls beloved children's novel james and the giant peach and he's brought along well can we just say an impressive lineup of uh of famous faces to help him doing that and it's to raise money for partners in health so uh it runs across 10 episodes it's james and the giant peach it's taiki watiti as well as are you ready how's this for a who's who chris hemsworth ryan reynolds benedict cumberbutch meryl streep Kate Blanchett. Did I just say Meryl Streep? Yes, Meryl Streep. Uh, Tessa Thompson, Olivia Wilde, uh, we talked about her earlier, Mindy Kaling, Sarah Paulson, Eddie Redmayne. The list goes on, all reading um, James and Giant Peach. And you can find that online. And it's just it's just a delight. So uh, future installments are set to arrive on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays at 1pm. So keep an eye out for episode three. He's just pulled all his mates in and it's absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. So that's it for the film file for this week. Uh, I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And remember, tis but a flesh wound. <laughs>